racing cars and watches don't always attract the same people. However, when the bug bites for motorsport, the bug seems to bite really hard. And in the case of Paul Newman, it bit really, really hard. And it seems that Hollywood and motorsport have some inexplicable, intangible connection to them. Because Steve McQueen, the king of cool, was also bitten by the motorsport bug and couldn't get it out of his blood. Except it started for him at a very young age. We've spoken about Paul Newman's 1969 film, Winning. But there was a phenomenon occurring in the 1960s and early 70s in the United States. In 1969, Michael Caine starred in The Italian Job, and there were the amazing driving scenes in Steve McQueen's Bullet. And the man who starred in Bullet, The Thomas Crown Affair, The Great Escape, Papillion, The Getaway, and yes, Le Mans, Mr. Steve McQueen, the King of Cool himself. American cinema in the late 1960s and early 1970s was obsessed with speed. And why not? The United States was producing more and more muscle cars, and car chase scenes were all the rage. This was also the time of Ford versus Ferrari at Le Mans, and racing, it's fair to say, was on the American conscience. But who better to portray that conscience? The one and only Steve McQueen. Today's episode focuses on the film Le Mans, from 1971, where Steve McQueen starred alongside a Hoyer Monaco, a pairing that would become famous in cinema and in watchdom, and a Porsche, but not just any Porsche, the fairest of them all, the Porsche 917K. Welcome back to Forward Momentum. My name is Todd Searle. I'm obsessed with watches. I pay attention to them everywhere I see them. One place I've been surprised to see them frequently is in the cockpit of Formula One cars. I'm a crazed Formula One fan, and I keep noticing watch brands sponsoring cars, races, and I kept seeing them pop up on drivers' wrists. I wanted to understand why watch brands lean so heavily on the world of motorsport. This is Forward Momentum, where we explore the interconnection between watches and the world of motorsport, luxury goods, gear, and the creators behind those brands. Welcome to Forward Momentum. Terence Stephen McQueen was born in Beach Grove, Indiana, on the 24th of March, 1930. Born to Julia Ann Crawford and William McQueen, William McQueen would leave Julia Ann six months after meeting her. After all, he was a stunt pilot for a flying circus. So the younger McQueen came by his rebellious streak, honestly. Julia Ann was unprepared for motherhood and left the young boy with her parents, where he was raised on a farm and said that he had fond memories of that time. His great-uncle Claude would have a major influence on the young McQueen, including buying him his first tricycle for his fourth birthday, with which McQueen would credit his interest in racing later in life. When McQueen was just eight years old, Julia Ann returned to be a mother to Steve with her new husband, and his Uncle Claude would gift him a pocket watch with the inscription, To Steve, who has been a son to me. This may have been a sign of the love affair with watches that was yet to come. McQueen would bounce back and forth between living with his mother and various stepfathers and with his great-uncle Claude. 
petty crime would land him in the California Junior Boys Republic, a correctional facility for young men. When he left at the age of 16, somewhat more mature, Steve would bounce around before he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He was injured and honorably discharged, and used his GI Bill to enroll in acting classes. Smart move. He earned money by taking part in weekend motorcycle races at the Long Island City Raceway, so racing was truly in his blood. Moving to California, he would get a small part alongside no one other than Mr. Paul Newman in Somebody Up There Likes Me. His big break, though, would come in 1959 alongside Frank Sinatra in Never So Few. Frank Sinatra saw something in Steve McQueen that he couldn't quite put his finger on, but knew that McQueen, with the proper experience and exposure, would be something. McQueen would go on to play many a rebellious character and wear many different watches. For Steve, however, many of those were just props. They didn't necessarily have the sentimental value. He had love for cars and motorcycles, and honestly, it seems like he would have rather had cars and motorcycles in the garage than watches on the wrist. Sure, he would wear watches in movies and own a handful of his own, but cars and motorcycles were really the draw. When it came to racing, McQueen was an actual racer. Again, he credits his Uncle Claude with giving him a tricycle that would set up his love for racing, but like Paul Newman, McQueen was in love with racing, whether it was two wheels or four. Its magnetic pull had brought him in and taken hold of him. McQueen was also a racing driver worth his salt. In 1970, before filming Le Mans, McQueen placed second at the 12 Hours of Sebring. Driving alongside Peter Revson, they would win the three-liter class in a Porsche 908, and they missed winning the overall race by just 23 seconds, falling to Mario Andretti driving a Ferrari. That's uh, not a bad way to lose, honestly. What's crazier is that McQueen drove with a cast on his left foot from a motorcycle crash he had been in a few weeks prior to the race. This isn't the first time that McQueen does something maybe with questionable judgment. McQueen would compete at Sebring wearing his Rolex Submariner, his personal watch, not a prop. There are many photos showing him wearing the watch at Sebring and while filming Le Mans. While he wasn't required to be wearing the Hoyer Monaco because of the scene, McQueen was wearing his own Submariner. McQueen would also have a single outing in the British Touring Car Championship racing a Mini and come home in third. He was contemplating the idea of becoming a professional racing driver, but was torn between his commitments to acting and wanting to race. In the end, he settled on acting professionally and racing as much as he could when his acting commitments would permit. As much as he liked racing cars, McQueen loved racing motorcycles off-road, participating in many different styles of competition, including the International Six Days Trial in Germany with the Eakins brothers in 1964. He would race the Baja 1000, Mint 400, and Elsinore Grand Prix. Throughout his life, McQueen amassed a great collection of cars and motorcycles, including a Porsche 917, Porsche 908, Ferrari 512, all from the film Le Mans. And I should note that his 911S was used in the opening sequence of Le Mans. His collection spanned Ferrari, Jaguar, Porsche, a Ford GT40 used in the Le Mans film, Mini Cooper, Chevrolet, Hudson, GMC, Triumph Motorcycles, and Harley-Davidson. That's uh, quite a collection. And while watches may have been important, his Hanhart 417 
Jaeger-Lecourt Memovox, and his various Rolex Submariners were the only watches that really connected with Steve and were seen on his wrist repeatedly. His love of cars and racing would lead him to Le Mans as a passion project. But before we get to that passion project, let's talk about Hoyer. As a brand, Hoyer was one of the most connected watches to the world of motorsport, and Jack Hoyer knew the value of product placement. He knew that as his brand was a chronograph specialist, they needed to have their watches on the wrist of motorsport drivers and the aficionados would follow. One way to do that was to get exposure on the racing circuits, World Endurance Championship and Formula One. But let's take a step back, four generations back to be in fact, Uren Manufacture Hoyer AG was founded by Edward Hoyer in St. Imier, Switzerland in 1860. He worked from his family farm and would mostly make pocket watches in silver. In 1869, he would get his first patent for a crown-operated keyless winding system for a pocket watch. He would patent his first chronograph in 1882, and in 1887, he would patent the oscillating pinion that allows a chronograph to start and stop with the push of a button, which is still in use by manufacturers of chronographs today. From the very beginnings of the brand, the focus was on chronographs. At the turn of the century, with sport, automotive racing, transportation, and industrialization occurring, the need for more accurate timing devices was becoming apparent. One such example was Charles August Hoyer, the son of Edward Hoyer, going to visit his physician and realizing that there was an opportunity to create a watch just for doctors to help them measure the patient's pulse. This led to the development of the Hoyer's Sphygometer pocket chronograph that would allow the physician to take the patient's pulse after counting the heartbeat for 20 seconds. The watch was patented in 1908. Again, as automotive and aviation pursuits began to take hold as leisure activities, Hoyer responded by building the Time of Trip Aviation and Motor Clock in 1911. The clock was designed to be mounted on a car dashboard or in an airplane, and the main dial would tell you the time of day, while the small register at 6 o'clock would tell you the total time of your trip. In 1914, this all culminated in a wrist-worn chronograph, as wrist-worn watches were getting more popular. And in 1916, with the need to time artillery barrages and sports getting more important, Hoyer worked toward the development of stopwatches that could take timing from one-fifth of a second to one-fiftieth of a second, and eventually one-one-hundredth of a second. This was accomplished through the micrograph and semicrograph, and these split seconds would follow shortly thereafter, showing the time differential between two competitors. In 1920, Hoyer had become known as a chronograph and timing expert, and was the supplier of all chronographs for the Olympic Games and some world championships. With fantastic timing mechanisms and being known for their stopwatches and chronograph pocket watches, Hoyer was quickly closing its grasp around the precision timing market. In 1933, they would introduce the Octavia dashboard clock, which could be mounted on a plate next to the Hoyer eight-day clock, and this instrument was a standard for racers, pilots, and gentlemen of leisure. As Hoyer expanded their line of wrist-worn chronographs, they would develop a two-register chronograph and then a three-register chronograph, which added the ability to time for up to 12 hours. Hoyer would start to add complications to these chronographs, tracking the tides, moon, time and distance calculators, and second time zones. 
1958, Jack Hoyer ascended to the head of the company as the fourth generation to lead the Hoyer brand. It was under his tenure that the company would grow its presence in motorsport and introduce the innovative designs that would solidify Hoyer's place as one of the legends of motorsport. They would develop a new dash-mounted rally timer, improve upon their impressive line of stopwatches, and John Glenn would wear a Hoyer stopwatch into space, making it the first Swiss timepiece in space. In 1962, Hoyer would launch the Octavia wristwatch, which would be the first watch to demonstrate the connection to both aviation and motorsport, followed in 1963 by the Carrera, named for the Carrera Panamericana, a border-to-border race across Mexico that was incredibly dangerous and halted after only a few years. With the acquisition of Leonidas, Hoyer was able to expand its chronograph and stopwatch line, but real growth into motorsport would come in 1969. The date is important because it's the same year that Paul Newman's movie Winning came out. Through connections, Jack Hoyer had made, he sponsored Joe Seifert, a Swiss Formula One driver, and through that sponsorship, Hoyer became the first non-automotive logo to be placed on a Formula One car. Working his connections in the motorsport world would prove fruitful, as Jack would make great inroads with the Ferrari F1 team and would become their sponsor. Their lineup included Mario Andretti, Jackie Ix, Niki Lauda, Clay Ragazzoni, and Gilles Villeneuve. This all-star lineup would all be wearing Hoyer chronographs, specifically 18-karat gold Hoyer Carreras that Jack had the names of the driver and their blood types engraved on the case back. Mr. Ferrari made it clear that he would not be paying for this sponsorship, so Jack worked out a deal where the drivers would have to come pick up the watches at the Hoyer factory, allowing him a little bit of extra time to take some press photos with them and make it clear that they were wearing gold Hoyers on their wrist. At this time, Jack also worked with Ferrari to provide them with timing equipment, but we'll come back to that. Notable drivers to also wear the Hoyer logo in both its Hoyer and Tag Hoyer guys would include Alain Prost, Ayrton Senna, Mika Hakkinen, David Couthard, Lewis Hamilton, and Jensen Button. Hoyer would pioneer the Caliber 11 alongside a consortium of brands to create the automatic winding chronograph. We'll get back to the Monaco and Steve McQueen in just a moment. But Hoyer, because they were a timing specialist, developed the Le Mans Centrograph, an electronic timing system that allowed lap times for cars to be tracked down to one one thousandth of a second. This allowed for much data to be gathered on the lap times and splits on the spot. Because of his partnership with Ferrari, Mr. Ferrari made it clear that he wanted this technology, but was unwilling to pay for it. And he wanted it in Formula One, but he also wanted it for Le Mans, because he did not trust that the French timekeepers at Le Mans would be fair to his Italian cars. This Le Mans centigraph allowed for so much data to be gathered on lap times and splits that Ferrari used it to actually really develop their cars and were really able to learn a lot about their cars on their own circuit and on different circuits and how they performed in order to tweak and tune their cars. This technology would actually allow Ferrari to go on to collect seven different titles during the 1970s, including Formula One championships in 1975, 77, and 79, and the Constructors' Championship in 75, 76, 77, and 79. 
The basic application of the Le Mans center graph was through a technology called ACIT, Automatic Car Identification and Timing System, whereby a radio transmitter was attached to every car, providing precise timing readouts. And the system has evolved from these principles, but it's pretty much the same system that's still in place today for timing and tracking cars. This allowed for continuous testing and development, which really allowed Ferrari to push their technology forward. Because of their specialist nature, Hoyer actually leaned in to quartz watches, developing the chrono split, a double digital chronograph with a split display. Unfortunately, in 1982, Hoyer would be taken over by Piaget, forcing Jack Hoyer, the fourth generation of the family to run the company, out, and the company would again be taken over in 1985 by business conglomerate TAG, Technique d'Avant-Garde, and they would acquire the company alongside British motorsport legend Ron Dennis, who is best known for his role as the founder of McLaren Group. In a hostile takeover, Jack was kicked out of his family's business. When TAG sold the business to LVMH, Jack Hoyer was asked to come back to the business as the honorary chairman of the company and to stay abreast of the Hoyer brand and make sure that it was going in the right direction. It's a move that I think is kind of classy on behalf of LVMH and really brought the Hoyer name back. It was really a shame what happened to the brand. They were an incredible chronograph specialist. I think it's really interesting to see what's happened with them. However, I do feel for Jack Hoyer and his family. I think that Hoyer, in its day, made some of the coolest and most interesting watches. I'll make it clear, I'm not actually a fan of the Hoyer Monaco, but I think many of the watches that they made alongside Leonidas and a lot of the Octavia, early Octavia versions, are very, very cool watches. Now let's get back to Le Mans and talking about the Hoyer Monaco. Aside from having their watches on the wrists of Ferrari Formula One drivers, there is possibly no better ad campaign for Hoyer than the 1971 film Le Mans. For those of you who haven't seen it, it chronicles the battle between two racing legends, one German and one American, at the ultimate test of both car and driver, the 24-hour of Le Mans. Unless you're racing obsessed, I think you can pass on watching it, but I'll try and summarize it here. Steve McQueen stars as American racing driver Michael Delaney facing off against Siegfried Rausch as Eric Strayler. There is no dialogue for the first 37 minutes, and this was really a passion project of Steve McQueen's. He really wanted to make a movie about racing because he was so obsessed and wanted to make a movie that really paid tribute to Le Mans and really helped to explain to the non-racing public why people race cars and what makes people race. Uh, it is an interesting tribute. I think it is somewhat beautiful. It's also just very long and drawn out. And the film production itself was fraught with issues from time overruns, budget overruns, and multiple script changes where it didn't seem like there was actually a script in place. I digress. As soon as McQueen steps into the frame on the track, he's wearing his racing suit with a very large Hoyer chronograph logo on the right shoulder, and as soon as you see it, the red shield with the elongated U is unmistakable. You could be forgiven for not knowing what the crest was, 
But I certainly remember seeing this image as a child and thinking how cool McQueen looked in his race suit with his Hoyer Monaco on his wrist. The Hoyer Monaco makes an appearance alongside him, its square shape unmistakable. McQueen wears the watch on his right wrist as he was left-handed. McQueen himself was actually responsible for the selection of the Hoyer Monaco, but not quite exactly in the way that you might think. He chose the Hoyer Monaco with a blue dial for the filming of the movie. Six were selected, and one disappeared immediately, one remained on McQueen's wrist for the duration of the film, and four remained in case the one on McQueen's wrist was lost, or in case a backup was needed, or for promo shots. Don Nunley, who is the prop master for Le Mans, has a great interview on Quill and Pad, where the entire story of how the Monaco was chosen for the film is. He also has a book on Le Mans, and I highly recommend checking those out if you're interested in learning more. Nunley had worked with McQueen before and kind of knew what he liked and disliked, what would look good on him, and what would make him feel natural. Nunley reached out to Jack Hoyer because he needed patches for racing suits, timing boards, stopwatches, basically authentic props for the time to help sell the story. He also asked Jack if he would be interested in providing watches for the film. And at the time, in 1970, the Hoyer Monaco with a blue dial retailed for $400. The story goes that uh, Nunley had sourced the watches uh, from Jack Hoyer, but also from Tissot, Bulova, Omega, and Rolex. And McQueen was really drawn to and wanted to wear the Omega. But unfortunately, before he selected his watch, he had selected his racing suit, and on his racing suit was a bright red Hoyer patch. And, well, that kind of made it hard to choose anything but a Hoyer. McQueen would choose the Monaco with the blue dial above the Octavia, which was Hoyer's watch that was really designed for automotive and aviation. So the Monaco was chosen for the movie, but it really didn't have a special meaning to McQueen. It was really just a prop. Around the set, on days when they were not shooting specific shots or close-ups of McQueen, he would wear his own personal Rolex Submariner around the set. He did, you know, after all, enjoy hanging out with all of the other drivers and the professional drivers who were on the set, being paid to be there and drive. At the same time, he also just enjoyed filming and rather living a, a reckless life during this time. But unfortunately for Hoyer and racing fans, the Monaco was simply and remains only a prop. McQueen appreciated fine watches, but the thread that we're looking for, like Paul Newman with his Rolex Daytona, simply isn't there. The watch just is part of his character, Delaney, in the movie. It's not part of the man Steve McQueen himself. So I appreciate that Hoyer uses this story and really uses this as a selling point. But for me, I see the connection to motorsport. I see the connection, obviously, in the name to Monaco with the fabled F1 track that, thank goodness, will remain in F1. And I also see connections between the rest of the Hoyer line with the Carrera lineup. But I also see the original intent of Hoyer building rally timers and the Octavia. And I really think the Octavia speaks more to the automotive enthusiast. And unfortunately, I think if the Hoyer Monaco had really become part of Steve McQueen, or if the he had chosen a different watch and had gone with an Octavio 
or one of the other watches that Hoyer had provided a Carrera, I think the watch and the brand might have enjoyed further success like Rolex did with Paul Newman. But because he used the watch only in the movie, it was a prop, it didn't really see the same results that Paul Newman's Rolex Daytona saw as well. Just to illustrate that point, in the same auction that Paul Newman's Paul Newman Daytona sold for $17.8 million, the Phillips Winning Icons auction in 2017, the first lot of the auction was a Hoyer Monaco blue dial from 1970. Yes, the same one worn by Steve McQueen in the 1971 film Le Mans. It sold for $42,500, just a fraction of what the Rolex Daytona sold for. I think if this watch had really been worn by Steve McQueen and had stuck with him after the film and after his time filming this movie and racing, and he'd been seen racing with this watch, I think history would be different. Unfortunately for Hoyer and the Monaco, the association wouldn't be made, and while I appreciate that there still is a motorsport connection here, it just doesn't have the same pull or emotional appeal that the Rolex Daytona does. I once again turn to Paul Boutros from Phillips Auctions to better understand the association of the Paul Newman Daytona with Paul Newman and the association of the Hoyer Monaco with Steve McQueen. Paul Newman was gifted the Daytona and his other Daytonas by his wife. And she bought them for him because he loved motorsport. So she bought for him what she thought was the perfect watch for motorsport, a watch designed for motorsport called the Daytona. And he wore and used that watch, those watches every day. He would wear them to racing events, use the chronograph to time, laps, not only in his second career as a race car driver and race car owner, but also in his personal life where his daughter Clea would tell us that she was an equestrian rider and he would time her laps and her competitors' laps with his Daytona. So it's a watch very personal to him that he used and enjoyed and he didn't wear them in movies. Contrast that with Steve McQueen and the Hoyer Monaco. McQueen only wore that those watches for the movie Le Mans. And then after the movie ended, the filming ended, he gave them away. He wanted to be as authentic as possible as far as what a race car driver would be wearing at the time. And the Don Nunley, who was the prop manager of the film, presented McQueen with several watches to choose from. I think one was an Omega Speedmaster, may have, there may have been a Belova. And I think his initial pick was something different. But then they saw that the racing suit he was wearing had a Hoyer patch, and they realized they better wear a Hoyer. And so he wore the Monaco, he, and then he chose the Monaco. He could have chosen other Hoyer models. He chose the Monaco for its cool color configuration and unique look. And But that was it. It was one and done, and those watches kind of disappeared. And in his daily life and future movies, you would never see him again wearing a Hoyer Monaco. And Le Mans wasn't a blockbuster success. It was really actually not a great success at the box office. So it, it didn't get that much visibility. Compared to Paul Newman, who was photographed all around the world for decades, and watch collectors seeing pictures of Paul Newman every time he's, he's photographed, 
that sticks in people's heads. Portia. In the film Le Mans, it's hard to ignore the fact that McQueen is driving a Porsche. Two, in fact. One being the 911S in the opening sequences of the film, the other being the 917K that he drives on the Le Mans track. Tag Heuer also has a connection to Porsche, and an entire section of their website dedicated to the journey that the brands have been on together since 1963. And the branding partnership has continued with a collaboration launching for the Carrera RS in early October of 2022. McQueen had also driven a Porsche 908 to second place at the 12 Hours of Sebring. Race cars from Porsche have contested Le Mans every year since 1951, making Porsche the only brand to have competed for 65 years consecutively without a break. The 917 that McQueen drove in the film had been piloted to victory at Le Mans in 1970, before the filming, and 1971, after the filming. For many, Porsche has been synonymous with Le Mans. They are always there, regardless of what class they enter. It is a brand that represents racing. People expect Porsche to be there. So it should come as no surprise that Red Bull has tried to get Porsche back into Formula One. Earlier this year, it looked like Porsche and Red Bull were set to partner in Formula One for the new engine regulations coming into effect in 2026. Negotiations seem to be on track and everything seemed to be going well, as we approach the October 15th deadline for the engine manufacturers to enter their name in the hat prior to the 2026 changes. Unfortunately, the relationship seems to have fallen apart between the two parties. It's pretty clear that this meant that Porsche would want to have some say in how the team raced and how they, how and whom they hired. And it's pretty clear that this would be irksome to Helmut Marco and Christian Horner, who pretty much have free reign to do whatever they please with the team. So for now, Porsche is out, but still interested in a future in Formula One. They dominate in so many other areas of racing, but with the increasing exposure to F1 via Netflix and the win on Sunday, sell on Monday adage, it may be helping to propel them forward, but don't hold your breath. We won't be seeing them anytime soon, but it would be lovely to see them back in Formula One. Unfortunately, McQueen's life would be cut short by mesothelioma, uh, a diagnosis that would be followed by a heart attack. He would die in 1980 at the age of 50. He was the undisputed king of cool, and he helped bring the association of watches and motorsport ever closer. Thank you, Steve McQueen, for everything you did for the incredible films you gave us and for the watches that took part in your life that you helped to popularize. Fair winds and following seas, Mr. McQueen. My name is Todd Searle. This has been Forward Momentum. See you next week for a closer look at Richard Mill. Until then, be good. Keep moving forward. Mm -hmm.